Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Yeah, I, th- I think it'd be interesting to see if, you know, what our top five Bob Dylan albums are, if we even remotely agree, and, and if Rough and Rowdy Ways is in there. Let's, should we do that? That's a good idea. Jeff Slate, thanks for joining us again. We, had a, we wanted to do a cold open like they do on Saturday Night Live, one of those things, right? Live from wherever, it's the next track. <laughs> Jeff, this is the second time you're on the show, and I always like guests who like us enough to come back a second time. The first time, <laughs> the first time was episode 131, where you came to talk about the liner notes you wrote for Bob Dylan's bootleg series, More Blood, More Tracks, which was about the blood on the track session. And... This week, we wanted to get you on to talk about Dylan at 80, because he's going to be 80 years old on the 24th of May. But let's go for the top five first. Who wants to go? You want to go first? Boy, it's tough. Um, Because I'm going to leave off albums that I love. Five is really difficult. So I'm going to pick Blood on the Tracks. Yep. Agreed. Highway 61 Revisited. Yep. Oh, man. Freewheeling. Okay. Time Out of Mind. Yeah, definitely. Uh, You're not going to choose Blonde on Blonde. Well, it's like, is it Blonde on Blonde or is it bringing it all back home? Or is it another side? But I already picked Freewheeling, so I'm good there. I'm going to go, or, but see, there's so much I'm leaving out if I, okay, but I'm going to go with Blonde on Blonde. Okay. For me, I would agree with Highway 61, Blonde on Blonde, Blood on the Tracks, Time Out of Mind, and definitely Rough and Rowdy Ways, his album of last year. And? Doug? Uh, I could only come up with four. And that's uh, Highway, Blood, Blonde, Time Out of Mind. And for the fifth one, i got to go with a guilty pleasure, and that's The Basement Tapes with the band. So, so here's the difficulty. We're missing whole swaths. And this is why we're talking about him at 80 years old. We're missing entire swaths exactly. of his career. So like we're missing what some people consider an underrated album and others consider a masterpiece world gone wrong. World gone wrong is I love those records. I, you know, and they put him on sort of the right path, right? I mean they they're, they're yep. pivotal records those two good as I've been to you and world gone wrong. And 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 also we're missing I would say of the three slow train coming in is probably my favorite, but I love that period of records. Um you know, we haven't, we're missing the 80s completely. And if anything, Infidels and maybe the first Wilburys record should be in there. I was going to ask if you wanted to include the Wilburys stuff, because I've gone back to the, the Wilburys albums and I played them on the radio when they came out. So I didn't have time to think much more about them other than as being like pop music. But I've gone back to those and those albums hold up really well. Uh, nowadays. It's not just yacht rock. You know, I'm not thinking of it as yacht dad rock. It's it's substantial stuff. <laughs> it's substantial stuff. And they were having, I mean, you. what we missed then, what we can kind of appreciate now better is how much fun they were having. You can hear that. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's a little, you know, it's hindsight gives us a little bit of perspective on that. But the second, you know, even though Roy wasn't in the band anymore, the, the, the second one, I love for completely different reasons because they, I think they felt like 
there were no stakes with that second record. You know, they just kind of let it fly. They only had Bob for a limited amount of time. Once he was gone, they kind of added everything to it. But man, it's just such a fun record. And it's, it was funny. I saw on Twitter over the weekend, there was somebody saying they were talking about Dylan and God, I, I, I can't remember what, what the correlation was, but they were going back and forth about who knew Bob Dylan was funny. And I'm like, why do people miss? <laughs> Bob is like the funniest guy in the world. And the people who take him, the people who take him so seriously and, and our friends are amongst that, by the way. Yes. And I have yes. been guilty of it is, is, you know, you're missing a whole facet of his personality that informs so much of what he has done. I think these people need to listen to a few episodes of Theme Time Radio Hour. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a great show and a great window into his sense of humor and his sensibility overall. I will say it's, you know, so again, even if we had made it a top 10, you know, there are, there are entries in the bootleg series that I might stick in the top 10. Um, you know, there's the records post Time Out of Mind. Well, there's even Biograph, because there's a, there's a lot of, it's a sort of greatest hits plus unreleased things. And, and that was pretty shocking when it came right, out, wasn't right, it? Right. There were some really great tunes. Yeah. So I think that it's actually, this is a genius of a jumping off point to, to because I think there are a couple of Bob's records that maybe none of us would put in the top 10. But the interesting thing is, if you got 10 of us in our list of top 10, there would probably be like, there was a lot of overlap in that five, because there's five that we all just agree changed our lives, changed the way, you know, rock and roll music was headed. Um, but if you ask me for my guilty pleasures, you know, those records might not be in, in the top five. You know, there, there are some records like Slow Train Coming just sounds so good. You know, he it was it was one of the very few times that he he made a record that was finely crafted. You know, his thing is he goes in that's, you know, the way he does it that day is the way it is. And then he kind of moves on and, and the song is a living thing. And then it becomes something else when he starts playing it live for for Slow Train Coming. You know, he had Jerry Wexler made a great sounding record with a great sounding band. And I think Push Dylan to really hone the arrangements and the lyrics and all those things in the pre-production. It was pre-production for that record. That's insane, you know? Um, or it isn't insane for most people, but, you know, that's not how Bob Dylan works. So I think, you know, that isn't even a guilty pleasure for me. That would be very close to the top 10, if not in the top 10. And, and, and also because, you know, I, I was trying to pick records that were representative of the records around them, right? Right. That are sort of milestones in his career. Right. In other words, I could easily put another side of Bob Dylan in, in, in my top five, but I picked Freewheeling because it, it's sort of the culmination of what he was, he, he was working toward that, you know? And again, it's like, I could easily pick Bringing It All Back Home or Blonde on Blonde or Highway 61. I could pick all three and then I'd be out three choices. So, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, you know, you know, I don't know. I mean, Blonde on Blonde, you know, my, one of my most treasured possessions is a original mono pressing of Blonde on Blonde that Bob signed for me. And, and it was a 
treasured possession before that. Now it's even more so. But but it's a it's a it's just such a, a, a unique and special record. But it's you know that I don't know. Is that a top five record or a top ten record? Is it you know it's 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 hard. You know it's like Highway sixty one is a more obvious top five record. I mean, this is the this is the thing, and this is why we can we can spend however long you want to talk about Bob Dylan for being eighty, for because each one of these records sort of reinvented the Bob Dylan we know and love. Now, for a lot of people, especially casual fans, and I relate to this through especially like my brother who grew up in the sixties, was a first generation Dylan fan. You know, he hadn't gone to see Dylan since the 70s until a couple of years ago. And he went with his son and he he called me beforehand and he wanted to know what to expect. <laughs> and I said, well, you know how in the 70s you weren't getting the Bob Dylan that you wanted? And in the 60s you weren't getting the Bob Dylan that you wanted? Yeah. Expect that again. Just go with the flow and try to enjoy there's an arc to his show. There's like a Shakespearean arc to his show now, or, you know, the most recent tours. And and he went, and he was really glad, because I told him, you know, he's not going to sound the same, he's not going to, the band's not going to, you're not going to recognize the songs that you love, but if you go with the flow, you're going to come out of there feeling like, feeling something different about Bob Dylan. And we talked about it afterward, and he, he really related, and I think that's the thing, you know, each one of these records, I mean, it was funny. I was I put I put um, blood on the tracks. I said that right away because I have such a relationship with it. But man, I I could easily put desire on there. Yeah, it's a great record, you know. And it might not even make my top ten if I had to pick ten, you know, because he's made so many records that you know, they sort of epitomize a time and a place in his moment in time as a creative force. Uh, and, and, and they mean something different to each of us because of where we were when we first encountered them. Think, think about the three releases he did from, what, 2015 to 2017 of all these old Sinatra-esque songs. No one expected that. Two single albums and a triple album, that was like... He was, I guess he was really excited that people appreciated that music because it, it was a bit risky. And then he just drops three more albums worth of stuff. And it's, it's a, such a different Bob Dylan, yet it's so Bob Dylan to hear the way he treats those songs. And, I, and you know, and I think what's interesting, they weren't, they weren't just thrown out there. I mean, these were really considered records, you know, the, the, the song choices for each of them was very specific, the way I understand it. His performances and the arrangements were, they were really well recorded. You know, a lot of these guys go in, make these, you know, sort of throwback, quote unquote, records. And, you know, they bend to modern sounds and, you know, Rod Stewart, I'm looking at you. And, 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 and they don't stand up. I mean, I think the, the cool thing is in... In 10 years, you know, when kids are discovering Bob Dylan's catalog, they may or may not know when in his career those records were made. They're just going to be this other thing. And I think that's what's particularly unique about his, his 
record, I mean, his you know, recorded work, he has such a strange relationship with his albums. Um, you know, I, I, this great, when I interviewed Ratso Sloman for, for the liner notes for, for More Blood, More Tracks, we, we spent a lot of time together and went out to lunch and, you know, talked about Bob a lot. And we got into this conversation about Bob's relationship with his records. And, and I, I, I guess it was, you know, he played him, he played him a test pressing or something. And, and Ratso knew that Blind Willie McTell was in the mix and so forth. And, and he said, what, what, the best song is left off. And he goes, Ratso, they're just records. I'll make another one. You know, <laughs> I, I never understood how he could have recorded that song, which is maybe one of the best that he has recorded and not put it on an album. And fortunately, it came out on one of the bootleg series releases. But that is an or extraordinary song. Or yeah. the, you know, it yeah. would have easily slotted into anything he was doing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. So anyway, I, you know, I think I think what I was starting to say is that th- these records when you take them out of the moment they were created, they're, they're, they're windows into him as a writer, but they grow because they don't feel tethered to those moments. You know, it's like I've, I've been, I, I interviewed Pete Townsend a couple of times and I did a couple of pieces about the new Who Sellout box set. And, you know, that record for many reasons, sounds exactly like 1967. It's never going to not sound like 1967. That's what people love about it. But in in a hundred years, it's going to sound like everything else from that moment. You know, it's going to get lumped in, in, you know, in and already is, you know, in many ways. Piper and all these other records that were being made at the time. You know, you take John Wesley Harding, <laughs> you know, or or or, or um, you know anything Bob was doing in that sort of wildernessy period when everybody was Flower Power and Haight Ashbury and Swing in London and Pop Art, and then going into prog rock, and yeah, and he's making Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding at the time. I remember having this conversation with my brother. At, or brother-in-law, actually, that, you know, at the time, people just did not, they did, that was not what they wanted from Bob Dylan. They resented that new Bob Dylan. Oh, no, I don't want this. When I was out at the, the archive um, one time. This is the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. Thank you. Um, the first time I think I went was with John Doe from X. And we were both digging into just sort of things we were interested in. And he dug into that that particular period. And we were listening to outtakes and looking at lyrics and, you know, all the things that you do when you're a complete OCD obsessive about this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had forgotten how great those songs are because they, they, they had become in my mind... Oh yeah, these were these records. He went to Nashville and just threw them threw them together while everybody else was doing these really finely crafted psychedelic masterpieces. And I I started my relationship with those records changed completely because I was more mature and gave them a you know a different listening and a different you know they created a different window not in not only into where Bob was at at that time but just everything that came before and after, you know, it's, it's, it's one, this, you know, we're talking about somebody who 
not just is going to be 80 this year, but who has been in the business for 60 years. His, yeah. his whole adult life has been played out in front of us. And so what we've seen when we go back to the... And, and not just in the business, but on top of the business. Yes. From what? Let's say about his third or fourth album, 64, 65. From that point on, he was a star, even though he had some dips and all that. But he's been on the top of the business for most of his life. People who have never even really paid much attention to Bob Dylan know that there's a Bob Dylan. Well, especially after the Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the interesting thing. There are a lot of people who don't like him and they don't even know why. <laughs> you know, they have this sort of misconception of him or, you know, we would say they have a misconception of him. And I think the, the irony is that's just one of the many roles he played in his public life that they latched onto for one reason or another and got a negative impression. And they're like, I don't like that guy, the voice or the look or the, you know, sarcasm. Or, my, yeah. my partner didn't like Bob Dylan's voice. We went to see him in, I think, 2015 or 2016. I sparged for front row tickets, VIP tickets. And she walked out of there saying, wow, that was really good. Because when it's a performance, when it's live, it's so different. And to, to be fair, people, it's a lot more difficult to appreciate Dylan's voice now than it was back then because of, you know, the age that, that has ravaged his voice. But it's true that when you hear something on the, when you hear, you know, my ta tambourine man over and over on the radio, you just, you don't want to hear anything else. But when you hear the variety of music he did, and, you know, what was he doing? He was doing some of the Sinatra-esque things. He was doing... Um, well, the te he, had te he was doing Tempest-era stuff probably then, too. He was doing Desolation Row. He was, yeah. What did he close Pay with and, around Pay and Blood was a real highlight of that, that period. Yeah, it's a wide variety of music. I want to just jump in with two of my guilty pleasures, which are definitely underrated albums. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a really weird album, but it's got one... But it's got that one song, which is just, you know, one of his anthems. And I kind of like the MTV Unplugged album. Oh, I love that album, yeah. You know, I, I have the recording of, what was the one in, in was it 93, where he did the acoustic sets in the New York club? Supper Club. Supper Club. Supper Club. That, that, I wish he did more acoustic stuff like that. It really works for him. Kind of like The Dead doing an acoustic set, you know, in 1980, before an electric set. That, that really, that kind of combines the band with his early acoustic, you know, that minimal yeah, acoustic yeah. sound. And on the MTV recordings, it's, it's lush. It's, it's almost perfect. It really is. You know, people will sort of deride him for his voice or lackluster performance or whatever. I, I find it to be completely the opposite. I think the thing about Dylan and his voice is that if you're going to make a technical argument about, you know, Aretha or Bob or something that's, you know, apples and oranges, it's not, not really worth it. The thing about Dylan when he sings, most of the time, he's like any performer, he's had peaks and valleys, as you said. But most of the time in performance, he is, it's, he's a hundred percent there. He is in that moment giving you how he feels about those lyrics right then. And if he feels diffident toward them, you know that. But if he's feeling it on a, on a good night, and I think the gospel era is a really good period for people to dig into who might have said, well, I don't want to hear songs about God. 
that is, you know, sort of peak Bob Dylan vocal performing. He is so committed to those performances. Um, and, and, you know, certainly the tour with the band were, were, were good, but it was, that was a more grueling tour. I think that was hard on his voice and, you know, but the performances are still there, but, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where if you're going to, if you're looking for pretty sounds, you know, Bob Dylan may not be your cup of tea. Mississippi John Hurt didn't have a pretty sound either. Yeah, get get the get the birds sing Dylan, and you can you know <laughs> really really love the you know the harmonies and the arrangements and the whole thing, and it's a great record, you know, um, and it's a great introduction to young people, you know, who are, especially if they like that '60s sound and so forth. But you know, I think as you know, I always feel like we're behind Bob, you know, that he, he is, you know, making these choices like John Wesley Harding in Nashville Skyline when nobody was making that choice. Nobody was going to Nashville and making that kind of record. And then, and 10 years later, everybody wanted to make that kind of record. <laughs> Did you see the documentary about Linda Ronstadt? I have not, actually. Same no. kind of thing. Like, she just wanted to do what she wanted, and she wanted to do Pirates of Penzance, and the record company said, don't even do that, and it turned out it sold just amazingly. She wanted to do an album of Mexican songs, and the record company said, oh, no, and it was like the best-selling Latin album in history. So she had that charisma, and she was in a position where she could do what she wanted to, right. and there are not many artists who can do that. They really aren't, because they're tied into the continuity of what they did before that the fans are going to want to listen to, and they don't want it to be any different. And we, we did an episode about Yes recently, and you can sort of narrow down Yes to like three years, right? 71 to 73, about, maybe some 74. And after that, they were just all over the place, mm -hmm. and but they didn't do it well, the all over the place, you know? <laughs> and so even, so they were doing this 50-year symphonic tour, and what were they playing? Most of the stuff that was on Yes songs. Those three records, yeah. And it's, it's too limited. I, before, this is a fascinating conversation. I want to just talk about Rough and Rowdy Ways, because has there ever been a, a musical artist at age 79 who's released an album so good Kind of, in some ways, he's remaking himself again. He's going back to that lyrical style of the early albums, the sort of blonde on blonde era. The music in there is fascinating, and I mean that that song Mur "Murder Most Foul" at almost seventeen minutes is just epic. Yeah. Well, to beat up on Yes a little bit more, a, a lot of bands have that two or three or four album run. You know, the, the bands that have sustained and and carried through you know where you know like the stones have this sort of you know beggar's banquet to sticky fingers exile kind of period or as i've often said they are the best rolling stones <laughs> tribute band out there <laughs> yeah and some so, you know some bands like the faces only make three or four records so you know it, it is what it is but but everybody has that peak period what's interesting about dylan is he has had he has repeated that hat trick several times so you've got yep. the first couple of acoustic records, you've got the Thin Wild Mercury music, then you've got the sort of country and basement tapes period, and then you've got the sort of singer-songwriter, you know, early 70s and Rolling Thunder, then you've got the gospel period. I'm just like, if you look at it, you can break it into 
these three or four album cycles. So what's interesting to me is to think about it in terms of, depending on if you think Time Out of Mind was the end of a period or the beginning of a period, and and then... Since it know, came after World Gone Wrong, which is just him and acoustic guitar, I'd call it the beginning of a new period. Right. So, but although... There are a lot of correlations between those yeah, two but records, plus, but we can argue. The, yeah. Plus the production by Daniel Lanois with a totally Absolutely. new sound. So if you take that and, and Love and Theft and then you sort of jump off, there's maybe there's that's maybe really a five-album cycle, right? And then there's the Sinatra records, which is, again, another three, depending on how you count them, cycle. So is this then, what I'm curious, if he keeps making records, is this then the beginning of a new cycle? I have, a, I have a question in that regard, because the only other older recording artist I, I could think of that could be anywhere close to Bob Dylan is Johnny Cash. Sure. And in his later years, he did something different. He, he seemed to be saying, these are the songs I've got to get recorded because, well, I guess Rick Rubin had a lot to say with, about it. But sure. it seems like he was concerned about his, his legacy. What's Bob Dylan thinking about? going forward at this age he's thinking about his whiskey right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah right that, well exactly it's it's we don't know it's he's not he doesn't seem to be concerned about well, it. well he certainly doesn't and, need um, the money anymore after his recent sale of his song rights he doesn't need to record anymore he can just do the touring i mean when you think about him at his age doing what a hundred shows a year pre-lockdown he doesn't need to he must really enjoy doing it i think so I think, I think um, you know, by all accounts, he gets something from that and feels as though, you know, I mean, again, I've made a joke, but you, we can never assume what Bob's thinking or feeling. But, you know, it, 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 from, from what people have gotten out of him in interviews and, and what he's telegraphed, he seems to feel that's his mission, is to carry that music you know, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, back after Time Out of Mind and, you know, in that sort of late 90s, early 2000s period when he was playing a lot of shows, he was doing Madison Square Garden, but he was also playing Irving Plaza. You know, he I saw him a couple of times in a basketball gym at the University of Rhode Island to mm -hmm. 1,700 people. You know, you said, you know... You had to get the VIP experience. We just walked up. We just walked to the front. You know, it was this little <laughs> tiny, weird, you know, college gym. And there's Bob Dylan. And the next night, I went to see him in a hockey arena. So it's like, you know, he was just playing where there were people he hadn't previously reached. And I think I think that, you know, if you've been doing it as long as he have, has and, and you've clearly touched as many people have, as you have, you're looking for ways to get in between the nooks and crannies. You know, you've got this big picture. So, you know, where's the light in between the cracks that you can that you can find? Yeah, how can he get past the, the real Bobaholics who are at every single show who he's gotten to recognize? Because when I was sitting in the front row, a whole bunch of the people there were people who'd been to 50 Bob Dylan shows, and they go to everyone they can. Yeah. No, look, I know I go, when you, when you go to a show here in New York City, it's been at the Beacon every year for the last five or ten years. Um, it's a little bit, um, you know, any of us who have worked 
on any of the projects were a little bit celebrities. So all the Bob, you know, all the, 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 the Dylanologists are all, you know, like, Hey, you know, whatever. And you're also looking for, you know, one time I saw Ringo and the, you know, McCartney's there, you know, Roger Waters is there, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a whole, it is New York city, but is it's a whole thing. Like everybody is coming to see and be seen because they love him. Because they're all the paying, paying homage, yeah, to Dylan, yeah, homage to, to Bob. Yes. You know, I mean, it's it's you know, Ringo is Ringo. I mean, he doesn't need to be anything else in this world, but he clearly loves Bob Dylan. Let's talk yeah. about you, because during the lockdown, you were really busy, and of course, we're still sort of locked down. I don't know what it's like in New York. You performed over forty Facebook Live and Instagram Live streaming concerts to thousands of fans each week. I got to say. Your Lockdown Live album is just wonderful, and it is probably one of the best CDs worth of Dylan covers I've ever heard. You've really got a great sensitivity. So it's it's two CDs worth. I'm streaming it, but the first CD is a variety of songs, and the second one is all Dylan stuff. That's amazing. Uh, congratulations on that. Is it hard for you to sing Dylan songs because you're so sort of involved on the other side, you know, writing about Dylan? Um you know, those, it's funny, a lot of those songs were one performance. And and some of them, I only ran through them once before the show. Like, it always, it always amazes, and thank you, by the way, but it always amazes me that Idiot Wind, I, I was convinced I was going to blow that, and I was actually afraid to rehearse it because it's such an enormous task. I'd done it a couple of times, as I write about in the liner notes um, to, to More Blood, More Tracks, a couple of times in the 90s, just out of arrogance. But <laughs> but I I think I ran through it one time, maybe twice, the night before or the day of or something. And then I just did it. Some of those songs, like Every Grain of Sand, that was the only time I've ever played that through the whole thing. I just did it. Ring Them Bells, which I've now, I added to the set list because I enjoyed doing it so, so much. The time on that record is the first time I'd ever done it, ever, ever played the song all the way through. There's something about those songs as a writer, performer, musician, Dylan Acolyte, you know, it's like, they're, they're like, I knew what I wanted to do with them in my head. I, I knew all I had to do was start playing them, start playing them, hit the first <laughs> line. If I could get the first line, yeah. Yeah. I was going to be okay. Because you're so familiar with them that once you get going, they kind of sing themselves, right? Yeah, I think, I think the, the difficulty was, you know, I, I tried to choose songs that I love, but don't listen to all the time. In other words, there's some of them, you know, like like a Rolling Stone, which is hard to do acoustic. But you know, we we my band does that almost every show. People love that song. It's you know, it's a great song. It's fun to do. But I, I like, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man. There's many versions of that song. Bob's done many versions of that song. I didn't go back and listen to the original version to try to capture the solo acoustic. I just did it the way I remembered it in my head, because I think the, the trick as a performer is you, you've got to put your your own self into those songs. 
And so they're in there somewhere, you know, I mean, all those songs inhabit, you know, some space in, in my soul. But um, I was, just, I will say this, I was, I was as surprised as anyone when I did the birthday show and it was, I think, 100% Dylan. And I remember, I, I don't get nervous before performing and, and certainly not to a iPad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I remember feeling a little like, oh, this is, I looked at the set list and thought, wow, there's some heavy numbers on here. And then I, and, but once I was going for it, I could have gone another hour. It was really um, fun. And, and you're not the first person to say I mean, I've gotten I, I've gotten people who who don't like it, or they don't like my delivery, or they think it's too much like Bob, or not enough like Bob, or I should have had more instruments. It was <laughs> you're like, how do I? How was I supposed to do that? You know, what about the harmonica? I'm like, Jesus Christ! You know, it's a lot going on there to try to manage all this stuff. Um, and um, and I it was funny because a couple of I did actually have harmonicas handy and and a, a the contraption thing. Um, and I was going to do it on a couple of the songs, but it's like, you know, it's, it, it is hard to perform to a camera. I made a joke about it, but it, it isn't the easiest thing in the world. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around one of the songs I was going to do was Hurricane, which I had run through. And, you know, Hurricane without the dynamic of a band, I, I, that I was going to play harmonica on. It, it just, it goes on forever. You know, it just doesn't kind of work as a solo. And without the violin, because that violin obligato is just right. so well, familiar. Right, well, I was sort of copying the violin half on the harmonica, and but yeah. it was like, you know, it, it's it's also eight minutes, so I was exhausted. Yeah. It, you know, it's like, yeah. it, it's such a Herculean task. So, you know, I, I don't, it was Matt, that, that I, I did a couple of shows where I did a bunch of Dylan because I wanted to do a whole disc of Dylan. And for his birthday show, I think I'd only done maybe a dozen or 15 songs. And I thought, well, give people their money and let's add some more. And I want to do Wilbury's song and, you know, a couple of things um, that I just didn't think of. I'm like, oh, people were like, why didn't you do, you know, so I, so I added those later weeks and added them to that disc. But, you know, it, that that particular show and that day was magical. I don't get to perform Bob Dylan music all that much. You know, if my band plays, we might do one or two or three if it's a long show. People always have left field requests, and I know most of them, and the band can usually follow me if I'm doing But, you know, we've, we've gotten all sorts of crazy requests. Shot of Love or, you know, whatever. Somebody requested Shot of Love. I think it was a joke. They, you know, they want to make their... No, no, no. I remember because Ben Benmont had done Shot of Love. Uh, ben Montench had played the city and had done Shot of Love. And so somebody said, that was really great. You should do that. And so we did Shot of Love. I mean, you know, it's pretty easy. There's not a lot going on there except for the words, which is on me. Anyway, so it was one of those days that was just, you know, a, I got a lot of feedback immediately afterward. And it was the impetus for releasing a CD. Because I thought, how can this just disappear into the internet ether and never exist again? I was proud of it because it was so, it felt like a special moment in, in my performing career, except it was only to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Lockdown has been pretty tough, but we've had some really great performances. I mean, Jorma Kalkinen doing his weekly quarantine concerts, um, a number of classical musicians that have done wonderful things. I don't know if you know about Igor Levitt, who did the Satie piece that took 18 hours. That was fascinating. And he was doing things more than once a week on Twitter or Facebook or something. He was doing these live concerts. So how, how is lockdown treating you? I mean, are, are you vaccinated? I am. I'm fully vaccinated, Good. which is great. Um, I'll be all clear on Monday. And on Tuesday, uh, Earl Slick and I are going into the recording studio to finish up the record we've been working on. Great. Cool. In like actually two guys with a producer and an engineer in a space because everybody's been vaccinated yep. and we can stay there for a couple of days yep. and you know we'll still we're still going to observe some distance and be careful and you know whatever but um, it, it's it's been it's been really hard you know I had a I had an incredibly busy 2020 planned and that all went out the window I, I remember. The, fir the Monday after the, the real lockdown happened, my phone wouldn't stop ringing with cancellations. It was just like, this box says, I was doing some liner notes and things like, this isn't going to happen, that's not going to happen, these shows aren't going to happen. They say, you know, and it's like my, all my income for 2020 disappeared. You know, over the next couple of weeks, it, it became obvious that this was something everybody was going through and, and that it was really, really bad. And, you know, particularly in the United States, we, we had a, you know, we didn't really have any leadership on it. So it was just a free-for-all, which everybody felt completely helpless. I mean, we're all completely isolated and helpless. You know, I had a daughter who was a senior in high school. That was all screwed up. And, and, um, and, and so at first, it was just so overwhelming. It was just one day at a time. And then as the summer came, it felt like maybe the dawn was breaking a little, and then the the fall hit like a you know like a sledgehammer, and I don't think we've really recovered from that until the last couple of weeks. I think it's it's now starting to feel like I think there's hope now. There's there's a little bit of hope Be, because we, of because of the amazing vaccination program in the U.S. In the U.K. here, it's similar with abysmal leadership in two countries. Somehow vaccination in the U.S., it's because of a new president. Here it's because we have the national health system, which has the logistics for this. And somehow this has been working. When the lockdown hit, we interviewed a number of classical musicians who, and for classical musicians, they're not writing their own material, right? They've got three years of scheduling planned for concerts and, and recording sessions. And so many of them just gave the impression of being so adrift because they were so used to this momentum that all of a sudden disappeared. One or two of them actually appreciated it. Now I've got some time to sit back. And, you know, one violinist said, well, now I'm going to learn Paganini's Caprices that I never had time to learn. But seeing so many, you know, wonderful musicians being so adrift because of this, it makes you realize that this kind of industry of performing for people, whether it's music or the theater, you know, I'm next to Stratford-upon-Avon, and our theater's been closed for more than a year. There's just something that is irreplaceable about that, and that the performers, the artists, what do you do when that's your life? You don't just get a job, you know, delivering food or driving an Uber. I, I do know several musicians who got jobs on in the UK, got jobs on farms, you know, just something 
to get up, you know, something so that they would get up in the morning every day. You know, I, I think I think I hadn't thought about the momentum thing, but you're right. There's there is a, you know, both in my writing and my music, I, I sort of always know, except for right now, always know what the next 18 months is going to look like. You just have a sense. You, you know there's this festival next summer and there's this, you know, you just know what's going to happen. And even if there's nothing that day in particular, you're working, you're always heading towards something. So at the time of the, of the, the lockdown hit, um, Slick and I were going to be going out on tour in the fall. And so we were supposed to be making a record in, I think it was going to be May or June last year. And so my March and April was going to be writing. So I just kept doing that. I kept acting like that was maybe going to happen. <clears throat> and eventually we'd get into the studio. And, and, and so I did that and, and talked to the producer I'm working with. And he said, you know, you've got some good songs here, but you also, because this was now May or June, you know, you've also got a little breathing room. So you've got... One that we were working on as a single, which came out, um, I guess, last October called Heartbreak. He's got you, you've got this one that sort of everything you wanted to accomplish for the album. Why don't you set that as your bar and try to write everything to that bar? And you've got 20 other songs here. Just discard the ones that aren't even close. Just let's let's set these aside. This one, this one. And he was brutal about it, too. It's like, I like this one. But it sounds like the Who, and it doesn't go anywhere. And you know, let's get you know, or you know, I, I like this one, but it's too weird. It's too Elvis Costello. It's in six eight, and it's you know, it's like it's got harpsichord on it. That, get rid of that one. <laughs> and we sort of trimmed it down to maybe a dozen that that we're now working on, which has been difficult because everybody's doing their parts all over the world, and we're putting them together, and and so now we're going to finally be able to do that all all in one place. Um, but it. it you know, it, it inspired me that the difficulty was when there was really nothing going on and there was no, like, release date. There's no point in releasing. I mean, for an artist like me, people buy my stuff at shows. You know, people stream it. I'm very pleased with that. I, I own my Astros, so I make a little bit of money from that. But the majority of my merch sales are, are at live gigs. And so if you don't have live gigs to sell your merch at, there's no point. So, and then your record is out and nobody, they're like, well, I want the new one <laughs> when they, when the live shows do happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, it's kind of new, you know, anyway. So, um, so I thought to myself, what am I doing this for? And I think that's, that's what you were talking about. Yeah. For, for a while, I was able to keep the momentum going. But last fall, when the shows were definitely not happening, and even th they had rescheduled them for, I guess, right around now or, you know, May or June or something, that wasn't, we knew that wasn't yeah. realistic. Yeah, yeah. It was just so grim then. We talked to two classical pianists last year. One is a woman in Brooklyn, and she decided to record an album in her apartment, something she had never done on her own piano. And this was, she explained how how anxious she was about doing this because she was used to the studio or to the concert hall. Oh, and not just that, but she was also very sensitive to what was going on in the world. 
Yeah. That was, it was, she heard ambulances and things like that during the day in her yeah. part of town, and it affected her. Yeah. Very so strong. this was Simona Dinerstein. I'll put links in the show notes to both of these episodes. And, and the other one is Timo Andrus, who we've had on twice before. He's a young composer, pianist, uh, nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He's, He's a computer geek. He codes his own website. He's into gear. So he set out to make videos of him performing, really innovative, multi-shot videos. And he's done some amazing things with videos that you just don't see about classical music. So these are two people that took this period of isolation and said, what can I do to do more? And I found that really fascinating, whereas some of the other musicians we talked to were just... Wait and see... Well, I can, I can clean out the cupboards and look for the mice in my flat in London, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not like that. I, I tried to keep, uh, you know, whatever my routine is, you know, I get up, I meditate, and I do my thing, and I have some coffee, and I sit at my desk for a bit to sort of sort through, you know, whatever I need to get done. I tried to keep that routine. The, the difficulty was, you know, and some things... I was glad to have really hard deadlines and some projects I worked on. Always good to have a goal. But for some of this other stuff, it was really, really hard. I will tell you one one related anecdote. When I was doing the, when we were putting together the Lockdown Live CDs, I had, I think at that time, probably 25 or 30 shows, which all ran an hour, hour and a half long. Some were two. And I just sent them to my engineer and said, just mix them all, chop them up into songs, send me the rough mixes, and I'll just, you know. And he's like, you want everything? I was like, I want everything. So, um, you know, first I just ditched all the, you know, the duplicates that weren't as great or, you know, whatever. And, And first we put together the Dylan disc. But when we were going through it, he said, because there's silence between songs you know it's just me talking to a camera there's no crowd there's no ambience there's no people drinking or having coffee or eating dinner or you know there's nothing and he said you realize those all those performances from april you can't really hear it when you're performing but as soon as you stop you can hear the sirens so everything from april and may that i'd done you because i'm i'm a block and a half away from mount sinai beth israel and he said it was unrelenting, the sirens in between the songs. You're just telling a story, you're talking to the camera, you're doing your thing, and all I hear as an engineer is, <laughs> shit, I hope he doesn't want to keep the, you know, the story part, because this is really interesting, but this is terrible because I, there's no way to save this. Because um, it's just, it, he said it was really, dep- it, it kind of got to him a little bit. I think it was a little bit yeah. depressing to hear all this, you know, over and over and over. Because it was the middle of the day. I was doing these at four o'clock on a you know Thursday afternoons. Anyway, so so um, you know there there are these constant reminders here in New York City. I mean, New York City's been through an awful lot. You know, we, we just there's a, a a lot of political stuff on the ground that's awful. Fortunately, it's it's Manhattan is very blue. But, you know, the former president is from here and everybody knew that. And we've got there's trouble up in Albany and Cuomo's got issues. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on that just feels bad. You know, you walk around New York City in the evening 
And and up until very recently, it felt kind of dangerous. It felt like it did when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. And it was, you know, I live in Alphabet City and it was it was pretty grim out there. You didn't really want to go out after dark. At first, when when things were in real lockdown, I would wait till it was, you know, to be safe, till the streets were deserted, like 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night, just go walk around just to get out, you know. And I quickly realized that was not the smart thing to do. You know, there were just there were just people out there who were just looking for yeah. drama. Yeah. You know, um, it's better now, but it it you know it's and it does feel hopeful and spring is coming and all these other things. But it's uh, it's challenging. It's emotionally challenging. I mean, I did a I did a podcast. I didn't really understand when I got the invitation that it was sort of a mental health podcast. And and you know, I, I wouldn't have normally done that but she's a fan and you know whatever i didn't really understand the connection but it's easy to talk about this stuff because we've all gone through it now yeah for 18 whether or not we've been in touch with our no matter how self-realized you were previous to this you are more so now you know i mean god miss him george harrison would have been great about now because he would have he would have had all the answers <laughs> For going through a pandemic, you know, he's very a very self-actualized guy. But um, we're all, you know, we're all groping around in the in the darkness a little bit, and I think we're we will hopefully come out of this a little bit more attuned to our fellow human beings. I mean, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly the thirty percent of the world or whatever who are just, you know, they don't believe it is a thing or it's not as bad as it is or we should, you know, whatever they're version of events is but the rest of us i think are going to come out of this um hopefully better more enlightened and maybe more connected well it's good to end on a positive note thanks so much jeff slate for joining us again <laughs> i look forward to having you on the show in a couple of years it's been a real pleasure what, what are you doing for bob's birthday you're going to open a bottle of his whiskey well we've been asked to do our first live performance um at We've had a residency at a club here in Manhattan for seven years and did it every month for seven years. And then that obviously just stopped. And it literally stopped just before our Dylan birthday show, our annual Dylan birthday show. So we're trying to figure out if logistically and safely we can manage doing a show. Um, the I think we could do it to maybe the, the limit the seating limitation would be about 60 or 70 people. And then we, we would live stream it, um, for, for people. And, and, you know, for, you know, whatever, I think, I think the minimum for the live stream people to put it up is five bucks, you know, but you could do tears and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I want to do something. The band is ready to go. And I'm the one holdout who's like, I don't, I don't, know if this feels right i don't know if playing in a room of people is okay i just don't know how i feel i don't know how and i also don't know if i want to be in the first group of artists to do that I, i'm not sure you know I, i'm very i've been very careful about the the lockdown and the pandemic and and you know there's been a lot of loss and and I, certainly that's touched me so I, I just don't, I don't know how I feel about it. And I have to make a decision. Like when we're done, I'm supposed to talk to the booker. So, you know, he's, he wants to do it. He's got a date. He's got a time. He's ready to go. 
the band is all set. They want a set list. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. See. There'll be a link in the show notes to your website. And listeners can check to see if they're in New York. They can see if the show's going to happen. If not, they can stream it. If not, if, it I will do, if not, I will absolutely do something. Okay. Yeah. Jeff, thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate it. I vote we keep this whole interview, and let's just go to our next tracks. Okay, I'm going to do this really quick because this was a long episode. Fascinating interview with Jeff Slate. I put on a Miles Davis album that I don't listen to a lot the other day. It's called Get Up With It. It's from 1974. The first song, He Loved Him Madly, is about 32 minutes long. It's this weirdly ambient composition. It's like, it's not like in the silent way. It's... I don't know. I don't want to say too much. So just listen to this album. It's got two really long songs. He Loved a Medley, 32 Minutes, Calypso for Limo, 36 Minutes, a couple of 15-minute songs, 12-minute songs, Get Up With It. It's one of the lesser-known Miles Davis albums. Doug, what have you got? You had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that you were, were listening to something on YouTube, and I said, oh, I can pick something from YouTube for my next track pick. And <laughs> I was turned on recently to... Uh, a band called Leonid and Friends, which does not sound like an amazing thing, but they actually are. They're a Russian, Ukrainian, Moldovian, Belarusian band, and their forte is doing Chicago covers. And they are incredible. They've got several YouTube videos up that you can check out. They have a webpage you can check out. They tour the United States. In fact, they're coming to Massachusetts in September. I'm going to check them out. I was turned on to them by my brother, who likes big brass bands. And these guys do the music of Chicago, particularly the era that I like, particularly the era that we like, um, the, the early days. They do great versions of Beginnings, 25 or 6 to 4, Free, I'm a Man, stuff like that. And the great thing is, is they do it note for note. So you might think that, okay, it's just a cheap tribute band, but they're not. The enthusiasm and the electricity of the music is really exciting. Uh, I never got to see Chicago live. I love the live album, but this stuff is even, they make Chicago sound really bad. <laughs> Let me put it that way. It's Leonid and Friends. Check them out there on YouTube, and it's my next track. This was episode number 208 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.